Amen. If you have a Bible, uh, could you turn with me, please, first of all, uh, to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. Uh, these weren't verses that I had uh, originally intended uh, to read at the start, but uh, that third piece uh, that the group sang, uh, really, is one, it's a piece that I love, entitled The Ancient of Days. And the verses, uh, or the word, the Ancient of Days, uh, was taken from in Daniel chapter 7, ties in really well uh, with what we're going to be looking at uh, tonight. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. And there we read, it says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame." Yeah, we'll end our reading there, uh, just at verse 11. Tonight I want to come and to consider with you uh, the judgment of God. And immediately whenever you hear that, you might be thinking um, that's a very, um, uh, nearly we should be thinking about the love of God when we come to the gospel. But before, um, or nearly, sometimes we jump straight ahead to consider uh, the love of God without first considering um, what we should, what we really deserve. Uh, we don't deserve God's love, and really, as sinners, what we deserve is God's judgment. And many people in our world today, they believe in a God. They're happy to acknowledge that there is a God. And I'm sure if we were to go down the streets of Saintfield tonight and to stop people and to ask them, "Is there a God?" they would answer in the affirmative. But we could stop there and we could think, "Well, that's great. People believe." In God, But if we were to dig a little deeper and to ask them more questions, what we would maybe begin to discover is that actually the God that many people believe in is a God that they have fashioned in their own image. What do I mean by that? Well, they've created a God, or their conception of God is that he has the characteristics that they like, and the ones that they don't like are absent. All of the sins that they enjoy doing, this God approves of, and he will accept them for who they are without having to make any changes about themselves. Maybe that includes you here tonight. You're happy to say, yes, I believe God created the universe, but this God that I believe in, he doesn't judge, he loves. But that doesn't match the God of the Bible. It doesn't match the verses that we've just read, that God, that the judgment was set and that the books were opened. Many people will point to verses like 1 John 4 and verse 16, that God is love, or God is a God of love, and that's very true. In 1 John 4 and 16, it says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. And really, whenever people um, throw this verse to us as Christians, it's a response to anyone who believes or teaches that God will punish sinners, that those who do not repent one day will face judgment. Surely a God of love wouldn't punish anyone, they say. And we can absolutely extol the love of God, and we're right to do so. And sometimes whenever uh, people do this, um, or sorry, I should say, whenever we do this, uh, we can nearly take it to the extreme. But all of God's attributes exist in a balance. If we overemphasize God's love to the point where it excuses sin, where it looks past our sin, 
we come to undermine God's holiness, to undermine his justice. And the very next verse, 1 John 4 and 16, is verse number 17. It says this, it says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. And John is saying that as believers, we can live our lives with confidence. As we await God's return, or Christ's return, because as he is, so are we in this world. And that is to say that we are treated by the Father as believers the same way he does Christ. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And whenever it comes to that judgment, we can have confidence knowing that our sins are forgiven. God isn't defined by our perception of him or our imagination. He's revealed himself to us in his word. And if we want to learn more about God, we must go to this revelation of himself. We must go to the word that is inspired by him. And I want to look perhaps tonight at what might be one of the most contentious attributes of God among people today. The one that they're quickest to discount, and that is that God is a God of justice, and specifically that he must judge sin. He must judge all of our transgressions, all of our breaking of his law. So if you want to come with me to Romans chapter 2, and we'll focus our time there. Romans chapter 2. There we read, it says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, eternal life? But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respect of persons with God. For as many have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these have not the law, or a law written unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean, while accusing or else excusing in one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And we'll end our reading there at verse number 16. And Paul here, as he begins chapter 2, he's continuing the argument that he began to make in chapter 1. And from verse 18 onwards of chapter 1, he states that God's wrath is directed towards all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. 
And these are very vast and generic terms, but Paul doesn't leave us in any doubt. He goes on to specify what exactly he's referring to. He tells us in verse 18 that it is we suppress the truth of God. This is why God's wrath is directed toward us. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That is the natural revelation of God. We find that in the world around us. And because of this revelation of God, we are left without excuse, Paul says. We cannot say that we do not know of God's existence because God has given us the information. And the indictment on the whole human race is not that we fail to know God and because of this failure don't honour him. It is that we refuse to honour him. And he then goes on and he gives a list, starting in verse 29, of sins that the human race has engaged in. It's not an exhaustive list of every sin, because I'm sure he could fill an epistle and more on its own. But he begins by, in verse 29, uh, listing fornication or sexual immorality. And then he adds to this wickedness and covetousness. And what an often underestimated sin it is to covet. Whenever we covet, we are calling into question God having given a particular uh, maybe item or something to someone else instead of us. And as list grows, he adds to it maliciousness, being full of envy and murder and backbiters, or maybe we'd phrase it today as slanderers. And lastly, is haters of God, those who are proud, who boast, who invent evil things, and then he rounds it out with being disobedient to parents. And it's very significant that he includes in all these sins that maybe some of them we would discount ourselves from committing, he includes being disobedient to parents. But why take the time uh, to give such a uh, drawn out uh, explanation of a chapter that we didn't read? Well, it's because in chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul continues on from what he has just been saying. He goes on to tell and expand upon all this because we judge other people for doing the same evil practices that we do ourselves. He says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. Whenever we judge other people, we do so according to ourselves. We take ourselves to be the standard of our judgment. Whenever we compare ourselves to one another, we might look at someone else and think that they are worse than us. And even though Paul tells us, as well as experience, that we do the same things that we judge others for, whenever we do this, we're looking to vindicate ourselves. We remind ourselves that well, we haven't engaged in the sin that the next person has, or maybe if we have, well, we haven't committed it to the same extent that they have. Uh, We haven't engaged in it as much as they have done. But we don't exempt ourselves from God's judgment by doing this, simply because we haven't sunk to the depths of sin that Paul goes into in Romans chapter 1. Rather, whenever we do this, we fail to remind ourselves that God's judgment It's a standard of judgment. It's not a ranking of humanity from best to worst. Rather, in verse 2, it says that the judgment of God is according to truth. It's impartial. It's an equal judgment on all without discriminating against all who have sinned. Verse 11 says that there is no respect of persons with God. Not only is God's judgment impartial, but in verse 3, we find out that it is inescapable. Verse 3 Paul says, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them that do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. At the very heart of our condemnation of others, 
The motivation in seeking to excuse our own sin is the desire to escape from God's judgment. We know that the things we're doing are wrong. We know that they are sin. In verse 15, Paul goes on and he says that the law of God is written on our hearts and that our conscience bears witness. God has given each and every one of us a desire for justice. Whenever we see wrong things being done, be that in our neighborhoods or whenever we watch the news, we desire for those responsible to be held to account. And yet each one of us here tonight are lawbreakers. Those of us that have been saved, we have been saved uh, from all the wrong things that we have done. But those of us that have not, we are still under the condemnation of God. As I prepared this week, I read one uh, commentator and I used an illustration of someone called W.C. Fields. And that's not a name that means anything to us here tonight because whenever I Googled to find out who he was, he died in 1946 before most of us were born. Uh, But he was a comedian and an entertainer. And the commentator gives the example. He says that this man lay in his bed um, on his deathbed in hospital and a close friend came to visit him. And whenever he came to visit him, he was shocked to find him reading his Bible. And he asked him, why are you reading your Bible? I didn't uh, know you to be a man who was devoted to the things of God. And Fields replied, he said, I'm looking for loopholes. He was looking for ways to escape the judgment of God. And that's like so many of us here tonight. We, try, we think that if we are not as bad as the next person, that we'll, God will excuse the things that we have done. In our land today, criminals uh, may evade the court system or those that hold them to account. They can flee to another country and be out of reach of um, extradition. And those, they can even hide in embassies to avoid the authorities. But there's one judgment that we cannot escape on our own. We cannot do anything to get out of it in and of ourselves. Each one of us has broken God's laws. And the Bible says that all have sinned without exception and have fallen short of God's perfect standard. W.P. Nicholson, the great evangelist in our province in the early part of the 20th century, he said that the same God who has appointed the seasons to fall throughout the year will never fail uh, to ensure that each one of these arrive. He will make sure that the judgment day comes for each one of us. And in verse 4, Paul adds, to his argument, he goes on and he says, Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth, leadeth thee to repentance? Paul asks a rhetorical question here. Really, what he's saying is, Do you think that because God is good, he will not judge you for your sin? And that goes back to the example I used of 1 John 4 and 16. But a God who refuses to punish sin, who refuses to punish evil, is not just at all. And such a person who, because of an impenitent heart, or what we may call an unrepentant heart, presumes upon the goodness of God as a license to sin, Paul warns us in the next verses that they store up wrath for themselves against the day of wrath. And on this day, verse 6 says that God will render to every man according to his deeds. We will be judged, those of us that do not accept Christ, for what we have done in the body. All of our sins will be revealed to us. God has kept a perfect record and we will be judged for those things which we have done if we are not in Christ. And this day uh, is called the day of wrath here in our verses, but it's referred to elsewhere as the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. And it's a judgment for all those who die outside of Christ. That is not having trusted him for forgiveness 
of sins. And we find it discussed elsewhere in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 31, we read there, it says that he, God, has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And Christ himself speaks of this uh, day of judgment in a number of occasions in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 12 and verse 36, he says, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. But perhaps the most well-known verse on this topic is found in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. And it says there, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. But having seen that God will judge sin, those who do not repent of their sin, to turn away from it and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 12, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 20, if you want to turn over to Revelation chapter 20, to that portion of scripture that details the great white throne judgment, uh, John in his vision of heaven describes what that day will be like. And verse 12, we're beginning to read, sorry, verse 11 of Revelation chapter 20. It says there, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. A university in history, uh, we used to ask, uh, we used to have a, a series of questions that we would ask of historical events. Uh, we would go through and we would seek with the, the sources that we had to piece together what happened, who might have been there if we didn't know the answer to those questions, and why those events took place. And I want to just ask a series of questions about uh, that judgment day for the unbelievers and to seek to, to paint a picture of what that day is going to be like. As we think firstly about who will be at this judgment. Firstly, those who will be at this judgment will be those who have died in their sins, who did not turn from their sin, who didn't repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12 describes that the dead, both small and great, will stand before God. Earthly prestige and position won't afford any privileges on this day. It won't allow any passes of this judgment. All will be treated with equity. Everyone will be summoned to appear for their final sentence. And verse 13 goes on to describe how that will take place, where the bodies will come from. It says the sea here, and it's singled out the sea, probably because if we were to think, maybe the sea would be the hardest place, uh, humanly speaking, from which bodies could be resurrected, right from the very seabed. And there it goes on, and it says death. And really, the commentators see this as symbolizing all the places on land from which God will resurrect the bodies of the unrighteous dead. And then lastly, it says in verse 13 um, that they were judged every man according to his own works. We will be judged for our own works. We won't be judged for anyone else's. We will be judged for the things that we have done. Hell will be emptied for those awaiting God's judgment or Hades as some other translations 
say. They will appear before God, uh, reunited with their resurrected body, suited for eternal punishment. But secondly, who else will be there? The judge will be there. The judge, the one that will judge those out of the things written in the books. And the judge is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll be the one to judge, the one that the Father has given judgment to. In John chapter 5, we read there in verse 22, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. In verse 27, he says, This authority has been given to me by the Father. Christ is the one that will be the judge on that day. But from those who will be there, who won't be there? Well, that will be believers. Everyone who has trusted in Christ for forgiveness of their sins, they won't be there. They will not be at the great white throne. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, we read it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We will live and reign with Christ, according to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. It says there, it says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received the mark upon their foreheads, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This great white throne judgment will take place at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. But we will be judged as believers. We'll be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. But this judgment won't focus upon our salvation. Rather, it will focus upon our service. It will focus upon the things that we have done for God. And specifically, not just the quantity of our service, but the quality of it. What has been our motivation in serving God? And the focus here, uh, we find it referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. And Paul here speaking says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether good or bad. And no one who appears before this judgment will lose their salvation because it's eternally secured in Christ. But we can lose our rewards and suffer shame. And this is a detail uh, more thoroughly in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, which we don't have time to turn to. But Paul there goes into uh, the types of materials, the, um, the precious stones that will be uh, enduring of the fire, but the wood and the hay and the stubble which will be burnt up, signaling those works uh, which we have done, not out of a heart for Christ, but maybe we've just gone through the motions. But why we do something will be just as important as why, um, or the way we do something, sorry, will be just as important as doing it in itself. Not just the quantity of our works, as I've said, but the quality of them as well. But turning back to the great white throne judgment, what is going to happen there? Well, Paul, um, John tells us in, his, uh, in what he's recorded in his vision of that day. In verse 12, uh, towards the end, it says, uh, And another book was opened. Uh, which is the book of life, or sorry, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. These books contain a record of every word and every deed of every unsaved person that has ever lived, every sin that has ever been committed. Romans chapter 2 and verse 16 at the very end of our reading says that in that day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, Nothing will be hidden. Everything will be made 
manifest. The sinner's deeds will be measured against God's perfect, holy standard. And all who come before this judgment will be found to have fallen short of God's glory. God's absolute and fully accurate records will ensure that no one is dealt injustice. All will be dealt according to God's record. In Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 3, it says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. He beholds all good and evil. He sees it all, and his records are perfect. In the parable of the faithful steward, describing the final judgment, Christ said in in Luke 12 and 47, he said, And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. After the books containing the evil deeds were opened, a second book was opened, and that's the book of life. In the parable that we've just read, Jesus here when he is teaching, he tells us that it won't just be, uh, we'll all, all those who stand before the judgment will be judged, but not everyone will be judged equally. We'll be judged according, if we're not uh, saved, according to what we have done. And if, we have, uh, if we've done particular sins, maybe we think about the worst people that have lived, who've committed the most atrocities, they will receive a greater judgment than those who have not uh, committed as many sins. Back in verse 12, um, after the books are opened, a second book is opened, and that's the book of life. And this book contains all the list of those who are saved. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul says there that our citizenship or our conversation is in heaven. The book of life records all those whose names are written in heaven. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15, it says, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Listen to how John MacArthur describes this future day. He says that all the unsaved who have ever lived will be resurrected to experience a trial like no other that has ever been. There will be no debate over their guilt or innocence. There will be a prosecutor, but no defender. An accuser, but no advocate. There will be an indictment but no defense mounted by the accused. The convicting evidence will be presented with no rebuttal or cross-examination. There will be an utterly unsympathetic judge and no jury. There will be no appeal of the sentences he pronounces. The guilty will be punished eternally with no possibility of parole in a prison from which there is no escape. Those are sobering words. As we think about what lies ahead for the unsaved, and maybe that's you here tonight, But the only question that remains is how can we escape from such an awful fate? Maybe that's what you've been thinking here tonight. If you're saved, well, when am I going to arrive at the gospel? I focused all of our time nearly on the judgment of God. How can we escape if we are not saved this awful judgment? And it's only whenever we are confronted with the judgment of God that abides upon those who are in their sins that we see the need of the gospel. And praise God, there is good news. And this is where the good news comes in. That's what gospel means, is good news. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. As I've said, we've spent a considerable amount of our time thinking about God's justice tonight. And as I said at the the start, all of his attributes 
are in harmony. So let's return to think about his love and to think about the greatest act of love that has ever taken place, about the greatest injustice there ever has been. You see, there is a way to escape this judgment day. But as I said, we can't do it in ourselves. We can't work our way out of it or earn our way out of it. The only way to escape it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Writing in 1 Timothy 1 and 15, Paul said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Our redemption or our being purchased and set free from the bondage of our sin came at a tremendous cost. And we read of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It says there, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For he, God the Father, made him, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sin. That's whenever God the Father treated the Lord Jesus Christ as if he committed our sins. Though he committed none of them. God's wrath for our sins was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew no sin as he hung upon that cross. He was the sinless, spotless son of God. But he was treated as if he lived my life and your life. Also that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God then treats those who come to him as if they lived Christ's life. The righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. Those who come to him, he justifies. That means he declares them to be righteous. He does this by imputing or transferring Christ's righteousness to our account. So whenever God the Father looks upon us, he sees in a legal sense the righteousness of Christ. In a legal sense, we are completely perfect before God. Romans 5 and verse 1 uh, explains this a little further, how justification takes place. It says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous, not of ourselves, but through the Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute, the one who took our place. And in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, he is the propitiation of our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Whenever it says propitiation, he's talking about our debt being satisfied. Our sin debt, something that we could do nothing about on our own, was satisfied by the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered in our stead. Jesus Christ, being fully God, took on human flesh and without ceasing to be God, came to die for our sins. As I quote 1 Peter 2 and 24, uh, you might be thinking, I'm going to quote a lot of Bible verses here, but this isn't my message. This is the message of the Bible, and I want to share the Bible's words with you, not my words. 1 Peter 2 and 24 says, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. Because of Christ suffering on the cross, bearing our sins, taking them upon himself, we can be made alive spiritually. Peter also says that we are dead spiritually in our sins. That's our starting point, our, our starting point, our natural condition. If you're here tonight who have not come to know Christ, we are dead in our sins if we are outside of Christ. David in his, his great confession, Psalm and Psalm 51, 
One that is true of us all here tonight said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And to sinners, the message Jesus had was one of repentance. Repent of your sins, turn away from them, literally to change your mind. In Luke chapter 13, twice in this chapter, Christ says, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And in describing why he came to earth, Christ said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But the last verse I want to leave with you tonight, if you're not saved, is found in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. And there we read, it says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? We've we've already seen in Romans chapter 2 that there will be no escape if we do neglect so great salvation. But we could turn that around into a positive. We could say that the only way to escape the judgment of God of an eternity separated from him is through salvation in Jesus Christ. For those of us that are saved here tonight, as we've considered the judgment of God, I want to leave you with 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. And this has been a verse that has been on the forefront of my mind as I've been preparing for tonight. And there it says, Knowing therefore... The terror of the Lord, we persuade men. As we've considered God's judgment for those who die outside of Christ, does this not drive us to reach the lost around us as we think about what awaits them? As the old children's chorus says, just believe and receive. S-A-L-V-A-T-I-O-N. Thank you very much for listening tonight. And just as we close, we're going to sing number 375. 375, I will sing of my Redeemer.